1: Well, good morning, everyone. Last week, I had the privilege of hang, uh, hanging out with the kids in the nursery and uh, just playing with them. And uh, although if I'm honest, I didn't understand everything they were saying. Uh, so I may have bought a timeshare in, in Florida. I'm not sure, but we had a great time. Uh, those uh, nursery workers, God bless them. Uh, God bless them. So you can turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18 as we're going to continue on in the life of of Abraham. And and while you're turning there, I'm going to open up with a word of prayer. Father, um, we ask you to bless us. Bless us with uh, really the, the significance of this morning's passage because you have recorded it here and I believe for great purpose for us today. And I pray, Lord, that we would be able to hear from you your heart. Uh, hear what it is you want us to know and to see, and that it would lead to a greater trust and a greater reverence and a greater experience of your life in us. And so we're asking you to, again, to bless us as we call upon your name this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Well, we've, we've come to a, a famous part of the story in Genesis, a famous passage, uh, where, where God has judged Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin and he ends up destroying them by raining down fire and brimstone from heaven. And, and this is one of those stories, kind of like the Good Samaritan story that is known uh, well, inside the church, but even outside the church, Sodom and Gomorrah is a is a famous story. And as I as I was mapping out our study through the life of Abraham, I actually considered skipping this passage because it really isn't primarily about Abraham. It's about Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, but not really about Abraham. And so I, I thought about just skipping it. Um, But then as I started to read through the passage, I very quickly got a a check on my spirit from the Holy Spirit saying there's something in here for us that we we need to to focus in on. In fact, I would go as far as to say the reason that this passage was recorded thousands of years ago is for you and I today. It is very, very important. So that is a warning then that to know for you, you guys, this morning is all about fire and brimstone. So buckle up. All right. I warned Mark, and he said he might sit at the back to slip out. I don't know what that means. So you read into that as you want. But if you recall from the previous time that we were studying the life of Abraham, God had come down with two other angels and they met with Abraham and Sarah. Specifically, they met with Abraham. Sarah was still in the tent, kind of listening in on what was going on. But he revealed to Abraham and to Sarah that that a year from now, they were going to have another child, that they're going to have a child of their own, that Sarah was finally going to have a son, an heir, and this heir was going to be the promised son that God had had given them. And so this was exciting news and great news, but now God and these two angels are on to their next appointment. They didn't only come down to meet with Abraham and Sarah, but they had another job to do. And so they're kind of leaving the camp and Abraham's sort of walking them out with them. And that's where we're going to pick up the story here in Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 16. So then the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. Just being a good host, I guess. Verse 17, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation and in him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I've chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about, uh, what he has spoken about him. And the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to this outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. All right, look at the beginning of verse 17. It says, the Lord said, and then he, he speaks a, a short message about Abraham and what's to come and, and essentially asking the question, do I, do I include Abraham with what's about to happen? But here's the interesting thing. Who is he speaking to? Himself. That was the first thing that jumped off the page here, right? That God was speaking to himself. And yet that's recorded for us. When, when Moses was writing out Genesis as being, you know, led and inspired by the Holy spirit, God wanted you and I to know what his thinking was. And so he shared with with Moses what the plans were here. And that's not often the case, right? You guys know that, that sometimes God doesn't tell us what's going on. He doesn't explain things to us entirely, right? Husbands, you know this better than most. I'm not going to go any further than that. but, But sometimes he tells us and sometimes he doesn't but this is a moment where he has. And so it made me think about a verse and don't have to turn to it, but in Deuteronomy 29 verse 29, it says the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that he has revealed belong to us for now and forever and to our sons forever that we may observe all the law. So here's the thing. There are certain things God says it's not for you to know it's above your pay grade, but then there's other things. He says, Craig, I want you to know this, this is important. And now We need to hold on to that. That's critical information. It's vital information for us. And so the fact that God has has revealed to us what his thinking is, is significant to us. So I got thinking more. Well, first off, you know, God didn't have to include Abraham. He could have just gone off and, 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 you know, destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, judged Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham didn't have to know about it. We didn't have to know about it. That could have just been part of history that has long been forgotten until archaeologists would come along and, and discover this town that's burned to the ground. But God chose to. And he actually reveals to you and I the reason, the thinking he has as to why he's going to include Abraham. And so he's, he says to him in verses 18 and 19, sorry, sorry, he says to himself, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed, For I've chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what was spoken about him. So here's the thing. God's, he's creating something through Abraham, right? He's creating more than just the nation of Israel. He's creating a group of people, a family of his own, essentially here. And, and again, it's more than just Israel because as we saw, the point was Abraham was to be the father of many nations, not just one nation. It wasn't that everyone was gonna become a, a Jew. He was to become the father of many nations. And that was this family, this household of God that he's planning for. And we've seen multiple times that, that ultimately that group of people, that family is who? It's us. It's the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And so again, when he's speaking to to himself about thinking what's needed to happen, and he's talking about Abraham commanding, uh, commanding his children and his children and his children and his children, the household afterwards, he's ultimately thinking about you and I. And so again, God's thinking was, Norm needs to know this. Norm's gonna show up many, many years later after Abraham, just a few, but many years later, right? So Norm's gonna show up and Norm needs, Jim needs to know this. Jeremy needs to know this. This is important for all of us to know. So there's something important that we have to understand here. And, the, and ultimately what it is, is he wants us to learn not to become like Sodom and Gomorrah, not to become like their people, that we need to learn from them, that we would, we would be obedient, obedient to God's way and who he is in order that we could do justice and righteousness, as he said to, to himself, thinking about Abraham. So let's understand now the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. What was so wrong with them, right? Sodom and Gomorrah has often become a, a reference point, right? A, a reference point is you can you can point to as a way to explain how good or how bad something is, right? So for example, if something's really great, we often say that's the Michael Jordan of, or that's the Wayne Gretzky of, right? If something's really bad, we say that's the Ford of sort of thing, right? So we, there's some reference points, both both positive and negative here. And so here... Sodom and Gomorrah are are meant to be a warning for us. And and so there's a comparison aspect to it. And so there's a a reference and a warning to it. And again, that applies for you and I today. In fact, both inside the church and outside the church, the Sodom and Gomorrah has become that standard. We kind of recognize that. And again, that was kind of the point. And we're going to see that throughout scripture. So it's important for us to learn what was so evil in Sodom and Gomorrah. What was so worthy of that judgment and that wrath that they were destroyed, that they were to become a warning for generations to come. Now, many commentators have looked at this and they, they would point to things like uh, the selfishness and the greed and the pride that would have been going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And they, they get that from other passages in the Old Testament that speak to it. Some have commented on the lack of care that took place because if you know the story, you're familiar, and we're going to discover it more, these two angels come down and all the men of Sodom and Gomorrah want to essentially rape them, to take them and force sex upon them. And so they, they've kind of looked at it and said, well, they're just not very good hosts. Okay, a little water down there. I, I think when you start there, you're kind of burying the lead. You're sort of ignoring the obvious. And there is an obvious aspect to it, which is, the, as Jude puts it in the New Testament, the gross immorality, speaking of specifically sexual immorality that was going on in uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And remember, the best commentary on the Old Testament is always the New Testament. Or really, the best commentary on Scripture is Scripture itself. And so we can't ignore that fact that there was great immorality, great sexual sin that was taking place within Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, again, it's not just the homosexuality. You can also talk about the fact that they were, were going to force sex upon these men. But again, in Jude, he, he makes it not only this gross sexual immorality, but going after strange flesh. So there is an element to it about the homosexuality and the adultery. There's all kinds of sexual sins going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. But if we, if we stop there and we go, well, God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of the homosexuality or just because of the sexual sins, we're going to miss the point. Those were simply the symptoms of the real sin, the real issue that was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah that God is so concerned about that we understand and we know. And I say that because later on in scripture, God begins to compare Sodom and Gomorrah to Israel. He does it through the prophet Jeremiah. You don't have to turn to it, but Jeremiah 23, verse 14, it says that also among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen, this is God speaking through Jeremiah, I've seen a horrible thing, the committing of adultery and walking in falsehood, and they strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one has turned back from his wickedness. All of them have become to me like Sodom and their inhabitants like Gomorrah. Now, that's not to say that they had the same level of sexual immorality that Sodom and Gomorrah had, but what God's saying is, I see something in them that is similar. In fact, Jeremiah later on in Lamentations chapter four and verse six says, for the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the sin of Sodom, which is overthrown as in a moment and no hands were turned toward her. He's actually saying that Israel's sin was worse. Now, I imagine that there was, you know, um, gross sexual misconduct going on in in Israel at the time. It wasn't like North Korea today, where there is no sexual sin there, apparently. Um, It was happening. I, I guarantee it. But not to the same extent that there was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet God says the sin of Israel was worse than Sodom and Gomorrah's sin. So what's the real issue? What's the real problem with it? What's really going on? Because again, those type of sins were merely the expression or the symptoms of the real sin. And the real sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was the rebellion and outright lack of reverence towards God's authority, right? we put it up on the screen there. The real sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was the rebellion and the outright lack of reverence to God's authority. That was the issue. Again, I say that because the best commentary of scripture is scripture itself. So turn to the second Peter chapter two. And Peter, he's he's going to comment on Sodom and Gomorrah much like Jude did. And he's going to begin to share with us what really was going on there. What really was the issue, which is why it's so important for us to understand what's happening there. So beginning in verse four, he begins with for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Here he's referring to the passage in Genesis chapter six, where angels came down. They're often known as the watchers from, uh, from a passage in Daniel, but these angels came down and they actually had sex with women producing the Nephilim. And then God judged those angels and he cast them into the pit of darkness And so that's, that's verse four. He says, God saying, Paul, or sorry, Peter saying, if God didn't spare the angels, verse five, and he didn't spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others. When he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So Noah's age now where, where the heart of man was consistently and constantly aimed towards sin. God wiped them out, except for Noah and his family, righteous Noah. And then verse six, he's continuing this theme. He he didn't he didn't preserve the angels, he didn't preserve the wicked people of Noah's day, verse six, and he, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Let me keep reading, then we'll come back to that verse. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. The heart that was crying out to God wasn't just the victims of the Sodom and Gomorrah, but it was Lot as well, seeing it. His heart was aching over what he was seeing. Verse nine, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. All right, let's go back to to verse, verse six, right? Having made them, Sodom and Gomorrah, an example for you and I today to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. That word ungodly, is the word uh, a say a bio. And, and it, it literally means without reverence. And that's what stood out to me here, right? It's not, it's not just that, uh, that they lived immorality. They didn't, they didn't just go and live a lie, you know, drunkenness and, and drug abuse and gambling and stealing and all kinds of stuff, you know, that sort of thing. It was much more than their behavior. Their sin was the condition of their heart that they lacked reverence towards God, that they had no fear when it came to God and that they decided that they're going to live any way they wanted to, to satisfy their needs. And, And to hell with God, essentially, they didn't care. They were simply going to satisfy their desires. And so they lived in absolute rebellion towards God, right? Again, verse 10, talking about these corrupt desires that despised authority. And those corrupt desires don't have to be immorality in terms of sexual sins and so forth. They can include that, but it's bigger than that. It's the lack of reverence towards God. Why does this matter for us today? Again, God is building a family. He's building a group of people that eventually you and I would know as the church today, the bride and the body of Christ. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to come and dwell with these people. I love 2 Corinthians 6.16 summarizes it so well. The heart of God. I want to I come and dwell with them. I want to make my home an abode with them. And I want to walk with them. He wants to walk with you, Mike. Isn't that amazing? And then he goes on, and I will be their God and they will be my people. I'll be the one to look after them. I'll be the one to care for them, provide for them, protect them. And they're going to be the ones to turn to me and trust me and honor me and show reverence to me. That's what he's creating. That's what he's wanting to do. But it's possible for us as believers, even to miss out on that. <clears throat> I saw recently a, a pastor telling a story of another pastor. So this is a pastor telling a story about a pastor, telling a story about a pastor, all right? It's confusing. I know that, But but this man, what he was saying is he, there was a very well-known pastor who got into trouble. He didn't say his name, but you can kind of, if you knew enough of what was going on in the, in the 80s, you could kind of probably figure out who it was. But this man had gotten in trouble. He was actually serving time in jail. So this pastor went and he met with him. And he says, what, what went wrong? What happened? Because you you love God and you preach grace. And so where did it go off the rails for you? Did you not understand his love? And, and he says to him, he says, no, I, I knew God loved me. I just didn't fear him. Please understand, it's, it's a, there's some nuance here. And, and I'm learning that whenever there's, um, whenever there's a nuance required, you got to still speak truth, but sometimes you got to explain more to make it clear. So here's the thing. It's not that we're we're shuddering and we're terrified of God, but we still need to respect him. We still need to respect his authority. We still need to respect who he is. And, and what this pastor was saying, this preacher was saying is, I knew he loved me, And I thought I could get away with it. I didn't actually think it would matter. So I didn't fear him. I didn't respect him. I didn't listen to him. I was going to do it my own way. You see, as believers, we could do that. We know God and we love God, but we just do it our own way. By the way, that's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Remember them in Acts chapter four, where the church right now is they're, they're selling all their goods and people are giving everything they, they've got to the church, right? And so donations or envelopes are at the back there. You can do it online. Essentially, that's what, how everything was going to the church. And Ananias and Sapphira were watching how the people, the church were celebrating the people who are doing this. And they say, well, let's do that. And they sold everything they had and they gave half to the church and half they kept for themselves. Now that's okay. You can do that right? The problem was that they told everyone that they gave everything and they didn't tell everyone they kept half back. And so it ended up happening. Both of them got struck down dead when they were confronted by Peter. And the the problem was, wasn't that they kept half back. The problem, Peter says, is why do you lie to the Holy Spirit? They didn't respect the Holy Spirit. They didn't respect God. And so the reason that happened in Acts chapter four, the very beginning of the church is God's trying to, again, he's trying to create a people, learn the lesson from Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you didn't get it there, learn the lessons from Ananias and Sapphira. God's not playing a game. He means what he says. And we don't have to be afraid and terrified of him because he's a loving God, but respect his power, respect his authority, respect him as God. You and, you and him are not equals. He is God and we are not. We need to respect that. <clears throat> and so that's what Sodom and Gomorrah were meant to be, to create a permanent reminder of the judgment that is to come both inside and outside the church, but particularly the outside the church, churches we're going to see. But a reminder of the judgment that is to come to those who refuse to trust God and decide to challenge his authority. Right, So keep that in mind, because as we go on, this picture of Sodom and Gomorrah ultimately is the picture of judgment day. The day that Jesus comes back, great right throne judgment, where he judges the world. That's what Sodom and Gomorrah is forecasting, is foretelling. So let's continue on in the passage in Genesis 18. We're not gonna, we're not gonna read all of it because there's a lot to it and, and I'm already short on time. Um, but I encourage you when you go home today or this week, read through this passage. Read through the the second half, beginning verse 16 of 18, all the way until the end of 19. Read the passage of what takes place in Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, There's so much in there, but let me kind of summarize it, right? So God sends these two angels to go and test Sodom and Gomorrah. He says to find out if what the outcry is true or not. Now, it's not that God doesn't know. God already knows the hearts of these people. The test isn't for him, it's for who? Sodom and Gomorrah. It's to give them one last chance. Give them one last chance to prove that they're not worthy of this destruction because the reality is no one is going to be without excuse when they stand before God. Amen. And so that's what these two angels are. They're going to, they're going to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah to be that test. And so then God begins to reveal to Abraham what he's about to do that this is what's going to happen. He's going to judge them because he's heard the outcry of what's been going on. And, and it, I imagine there was a, there's a moment of pause where it's just God and Abraham, the two angels have left now and Abraham's a little bit distant away and he's, he's pondering what's about to happen. And immediately his mind goes to his nephew Lot, his beloved nephew Lot. And he knows Lot's down in Sodom right now. And his concern is for his nephew and his family. And, and so then it says, I think it's in verse 23, that Abraham drew near to God. I love that. That gives me chills right now, just thinking about that, that picture that there was some separation there. And then, then Abraham approached God. and They drew near to him. And there's some intimacy there. And what we're gonna see is now that famous uh, negotiation or haggling that takes place between God and Abraham about the number of righteous people required to save Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's almost comical when you read through it, right? You know, God, if there are 50 people, would you save the cities? Oh, for, for 50 people, I would save the people. I'd save the cities. God, it, it don't even bother you, but if they were there 45, I mean, you would, that's only a five person different, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for five people, would you? No, I wouldn't. Okay, God, what about 40 people? I don't mean to be a bother. What about 30 people? I'm sorry, 20 people. Okay, last one, 10 people. And he's just going down. And each time God says, no, I will not destroy it. If there are 50, 45, 30, 20 10 people. And again, it's almost comical when you read it, except when you read through it. And again, I encourage you to read to it. You'll see the reverence that Abraham has towards God, the respect, the honor. And yet he's, he's not terrified of him. He drew close. He drew near. He's speaking to him. And that's the relationship we can have with our heavenly father. He's our father. He's our king. He's our God. He's our Lord. He's our master. And he's the one that loves us. He's our groom and we're his bride, we're his body. And so we can, we can draw near to him. And again, each time God's, God's saying, I would save them. But notice when you read through that passage, Abraham's not worried about Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, their infamy is well-known. Their sin is well-known. He knows what's going on down there, Abraham does. His concern is for the righteous lot, his, his beloved nephew, that's where his heart is. So then in chapter 19, now, verses one to 11, we read about the test, right? We read about these two angels and they, they arrive in the evening and Lot is sitting at the gate of the city. This tells us something about Lot. Remember, we, we commented about Abraham, that Abraham, he dwelt in Haran before he crossed into Canaan into the promised land. But after that, now that he's in Canaan, he never had a place of dwelling. He didn't have a structure. He only lived in tents the rest of his life. He was a sojourner. He was always on the move, essentially. Even when he, he, he planted himself for, for years in a spot, he still lived in tents outside the city because he was a foreigner. That's where a lot of scholars believe the word Hebrew comes from, someone from afar. They're not really, they don't really belong here. And so when, when Lot first went down to Sodom, he followed that path and he lived outside the city of Sodom. But over time, he's now moved in the town. Over time, he's taken up residence now. And when you sit at the gate of the city, that's sort of the public square. That's where people come to gather. But it's also often the place where elders are, where people come to ask questions. And so Lot sort of now kind of incorporated himself into the city and he sees these two men coming late at night. A lot knows what's going to happen to them. He's seen the, the, uh, gross sexual immorality. He's seen the violence. He's seen the hearts of these men and and Sodom. And so he immediately runs up to these, these two men and says, please turn aside, come into my home, stay there the night. You can't stay out here. Remember the angels are here to test Sodom and they're like, Nope, we're good. See that park bench over here. I think we'll just hang out there for a little while. But again, Lot knows what's going on. And he's like, no, you have to come with me. And he almost kind of imposes himself on them and he forces them in. And so they agree. And I can almost picture it in my mind where, where as Lot's leading him into his home, he's constantly looking over his shoulder. Did anyone see us? Does anyone know they're here? Because if they do, we're in trouble. So he sneaks them into the house and he begins to feed them and, and prepare a meal for them and gets them ready to, to, to lie down at night because he knows he can't. they're not safe on the streets. And then maybe they can slip out early in the morning. Everything will be fine, except the word got out. And it says that every man from every quarter came to Lot's home. Now, Sometimes the Bible, when it uses the word all, it, it doesn't mean literally everyone. For example, it talks about how all of Jerusalem came out to hear John the Baptist. I don't believe every person in Jerusalem came out, but the fact that the writer says all, every man from every quarter, I believe in this case, it was every man that every person, every man of Sodom came to Lot's home, descended on Lot's home and began to scream. I don't know if they had pitchforks and torches, but they were there for violence. And they demand that Lot sends these two men out that they may force, they may have sex with these men. That's, that's, there's no other way around understanding that passage, that they were going to, to violently rape these men. And, and, and here's where Lot, he comes out First, and he's begging guys don't do this don't do these these men are in my home they're in my my, they're under my don't do it and then there's the confusing part where he says listen i've got he says i got two virgin daughters i'll give you them instead now today we don't understand that but the reason he says that is because these two men are under my protection Remember when we talked about threshold covenant many weeks ago, that's what's happened here. These two men have entered into a covenant with Lot where Lot says, I will do everything I can in my power to protect you, even at my own expense, even if it's going to cost me my life. And so that's what he's doing here. He's putting everything on the line because he owes it to protect these two men. And what we're seeing though, is we're seeing the heart of Lot. See, not only are these two angels testing Sodom, they're testing Lot. And what Lot is showing is his righteousness, that he's going to protect these two men who are innocent, even at great cost. We may not understand it in our 21st century, but that was happening and that made sense. In fact, it would have been a sin of Lot to not do that. But they don't want these girls. They want the men and they start getting angry. And they're like, who are you to judge us? you foreigner. There's a lesson there for us. You see, Lot was never one of them. As much as he tried to be, as much as he tried to fit in, he was never one of them and they knew it. And then when, when they began, when he began to stand up for righteousness, they immediately attacked him to dismiss it. It wasn't that he's right or not. It was simply, how dare you judge us? There's a great picture for that. You and I today especially you youth. I say that because I, I remember being a youth many, many years ago and, and the pressure to fit in the pressure to be one of the crowd is immense and huge. The problem is you'll never fit in. You'll always be different and they'll know it. And the moment you stand up, they'll call you on it. Who are you to judge us? And you're not. You're simply standing up for truth and righteousness. And that's what God wanted us to do, right? He was, that's why he did this with Abraham. That's what he's wanting for you and I is to be a group of people that stands up for truth, justice, and righteousness. That's what he's asking of us. Well, they're not happy with this. And now they're like, in fact, now we're gonna treat you worse than we're gonna treat those two men. And the crowd just begins to push in against Lot at which point the door quickly opens and these two angels just drag Lot in and slam the door. Again, made for movies, this stuff. And then the angels strike everyone with blindness. And so these these men now are groping. They can't find the door. They can't find the home. And they exhaust themselves trying to get into Lot's home until they just are so tired they go home. So they're protected now and they're safe. But they failed the test. They fail to defend or to prove that they're worthy of God's, God's uh, mercy on this. Really what they are, are worthy of God's judgment. And so what happens next is gonna be illustrative for you and I. Each character and their response, I believe, can identify a different person today. And hopefully, well, not hopefully, you will be able to see yourself in one of them. I just hope you see yourself in the right one. And so what happens now is in the morning, uh, it's time to go. And the angels say, grab your family, grab your brother, grab your your sister, your grandmother, your dog, even the pet gerbil. We got to get out of of town because nothing's going to remain. Let's go. And so Lot goes up to his son-in-laws, the ones who have been betrothed to his two virgin daughters. And he says to them, We got to get out of here. The place is going to be destroyed. God's going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. There's not going to be any more Sodom and Gomorrah. And you know what the response was? This is a funny joke. Like, I don't know what kind of humor Lot had normally, but they thought this was a joke. But you know, that's a picture of the world. When they hear the warning, they hear the reality of judgment that they are going to have to stand accountable to God one day. I think it's just a big joke. I don't need to go. I actually kind of like it here. This is working for me. And so they decline salvation. And again, everyone is going to be without excuse. Well, God, why didn't you warn me? God, why didn't you save me? Because you chose not to. You had your opportunity. And like Lot's son in laws, they declined and they said no. And so now it's time to leave. And and this is what was amazing to me is that in that moment, it's like, go time. We got to get out of here now. It says, Lot hesitated. Do you believe that? Righteous Lot sits there and goes, I don't know if I want to leave. You see, the reason is because he had moved into town, because he he had come to associate himself with Sodom. And he was now one of them in his mind, at least that impact, that influence now was creating a struggle here. Do I go with God or do I stay with the people? And sometimes as believers, the world gets such a grip on us where we were craving that friendship with the world. And what the Bible in in Corinthians refers to as a carnal Christian Christian where you're saved, you have the life of Jesus inside of you, but there's so many thorns and thistles of the cares of this world, where everything in this world is all wrapped up around you and, and holding you in bondage and you're not ready or willing to let go of it to tro- fully trust God. And so they hesitate, but the angels grab hold of him and his, his wife and his daughters and they kind of drag them out of town. And when I read that, I thought, my God is faithful to save. Even in that moment of hesitation, he remains faithful to us and he will save us. And so if you're that person who's kind of stuck trying to please God, but fit into this world and there's a hesitation, who will I really lean into? Who will I really trust and learn from lot? Well, now the they leave the edge of town and, and uh, they're told to go to the mountains, but they, he says, I can't do it there. And so they, he, he negotiates with the angels and they go to a little town, small town called Zor. And that's where they're going to go for, for protection. And then the fire and brimstone rains down on Sodom and Gomorrah in the valleys, it says. So the whole area. And what's amazing is archaeologists today have found Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a great YouTube video out there, a great channel called Expedition Bible. He's an, ar- an archeologist and he 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 shows all kinds of great history that you can see in real life about times in the Bible. And there's one, if you search up Expedition Bible in Sodom and Gomorrah, he actually takes you to the place and you can see the cities because they know it's cities because they can see the pottery and the bones and the skulls in this ash level layer. But even in the valley, where there was no city was destroyed. And archeologists go, well, there's something different here because sometimes, well, the fire is just because an invading army comes in and burns down the city, but they had never burned down the graveyard or the valley. And yet that's what's happened here. They can find Sodom, they can find Gomorrah and they can find the valley. It's all been destroyed. And to this day, there's little tiny balls of sulfur they find as well. It's a real story, really happened. And then in verse 26 in chapter 19, we read that, that Lot's wife does what? She turned back and because of that, her heart, or she, sorry, because of that, she was turned to a pillar of salt. And this is the scariest one of all the warnings. You see, the, the son-in-laws are easy to spot. They're the ones who've rejected Christ. They've, they're not in the church, they've rejected it outright. Lot is a little terrifying, but yet he's still saved and rescued by God's grace because it says God's compassion, his loving kindness is what motivated the angels to put their hand on his wrist and pull him out. But Lot's wife, she's she's akin to the person who's in the church today, shows up every Sunday, maybe even is serving and, and maybe they're part of a Bible study. They're going through the motions though and their heart isn't towards God you see her turning back it wasn't that she looked over her shoulder it wasn't like Medusa was sitting there and turned her into a pillar of salt the issue was why she turned back that even when Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed what did she want what did she crave she craved Sodom and Gomorrah that's what she longed for And so Lot's wife is the person who is, is professing a faith in Christ, but does not possess a faith in Christ. Someone who's sitting in the church, who doesn't actually want God. They're just sort of going through the motions of all that. And that the one is to me, the most terrifying illustration for us today. Well, turn your Bibles now to Luke chapter 17, and it's a longer passage here, but but this is sort of why it all matters again, right? Best scripture, scripture commentates on scripture is the best commentary. And so in Luke chapter 17, beginning verse 22, Jesus is speaking about his coming judgment. Now, some people look at Sodom and Gomorrah and think about tribulation. that it's a picture of, of what that tribulation is going to look like. It's not. It's what's going to happen at the end of the tribulation when the judgment takes place. So in verse 22, Jesus says to the disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the son of man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there, look here, do not go away and do not run after them. Basically saying, I'm going to go away for a time, right? I'm going to leave and you're going to want to see me, but you're not. But there are going to be many who who, um, profess to see me. And he says, that's not the case. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of the part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the son of man be in his day. That's the return of Christ. It will happen in an instant. Verse 25, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. He said, before I got to die, that's the cross, right? Because in Luke 17, he hasn't been to the cross yet. But then speaking of that judgment and just as it happened in the days of Noah, Whereas Peter quoted, just as the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the son of man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given to marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same thing as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building, they were going about their life. They didn't see it coming because it happened in an instant. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from the heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the son of man is revealed, the day that Jesus returns. On that day, the one who is in the housetop, whose goods are in the house, must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Remember where your heart is. Take note of who you're trusting and who you want. Verse 33, whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. If you want to be your own God, if you want to be in charge, if you're holding on to things on your own, he says you will lose it. But whoever loses it, whoever's willing to surrender and submit and hand themselves over to me, guess what? You're going to keep it because I will protect you. I will care for you. I will grab you by the hand if necessary and pull you out. Now, please understand, you might be terrified thinking, am I Lot's wife now? How, how, how do I know if I, if I love God or if I'm really just loving the world? Because I struggle at times and, and there's this back and forth here. I would argue that the care that you have exhibited there shows that you're not Lot's wife. Maybe more like Lot where you have that hesitation, but you're not Lot's wife then. And I say that because there's, we have to remember that God is able to protect us. We're running out of time. So I'm just gonna to read to you in Jude chapter one, cause there's only one chapter, verse, beginning verse 20. He writes this, but you beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Oh, that's beautiful. Just keep focusing on, remember, God loves you, has care for you, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Looking forward to the day he returns. Come Lord Jesus. Right? And so that's again, still reverence, still respect, but trusting in that love and have mercy on some who are doubting, the people who are like Lot. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. Be like the angels grab them by the hand and pull them to safety, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So their behavior doesn't look good. They're living lifestyles and behaviors that aren't consistent with who they are, but their heart is still belonging to God. Verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and great joy. Remember we saw in Abraham earlier that God's plan, and I think it was verse chapter 17, it was to stand and be complete, be blameless. And he says, God is able to do that. Verse 25, to the only God, our savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Right, the the reverence, the respect there that we offer to God. Let me close with one more thing. One more passage that I think is is powerful and it's it's back in Genesis chapter 19. It's after all this has taken place. So in verse 27 Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he stood before the Lord. So he's going back and he's waiting to see what took place. How is the judgment? Is Sodom and Gomorrah still standing or is it gone? And what would he have seen? This mass billowing pillar of smoke. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land in the valley. And he saw and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overflow O- overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Did you see it? Verse 29 there. Lot was saved because of Abraham. Because Abraham's prayer, because that's all it was when he drew near, right? It was prayer. When he interceded on behalf of Lot. And so even though there wasn't 10 people who were righteous, there were three, Lot and his two daughters. God still saves them, right? I I remember reading that story and going, God, like Abraham, why did you stop at 10? Keep negotiating. He hasn't said no yet, right? I mean, that's rule number one, right? John, just keep going. Go to as low as one. What do you got to risk? What do you got to lose? He says, no, okay. And I guess he failed. That's how I interpreted it. And then I'm reading the passage and I'm going, wait a minute. Even though they didn't find 10, God still saved the righteous because the righteous didn't face the judgment. And that's going to be the case for you and I. We won't face the great white throne judgment. We won't face the second death death, because we've been rescued from that. The judgment you and I face is graduation day. It's an award ceremony. It's a celebration. And so we've been rescued from that. We've been rescued from what the world's about to face. But what stood out to me was, it was Abraham's prayer. It was him interceding. Think about some people in your lives. Maybe some family members. Maybe some friends. Maybe some enemies, some coworkers. Maybe there's even people in the government that you're not too fans of, right? These are people maybe you could be praying for. That maybe your intercessory prayer could be the very thing that ends up with them having soft hearts towards God. Keep praying. Story's not over yet. There's more to come, more to be revealed. And maybe you get to play a part and you will celebrate with as much joy as the party going on in heaven, the day that they accept this gift of salvation and escape the judgment that awaits, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the power of prayer. So as we close here, again, I want you to ponder, who are you like? You're here. So I don't think you're like Lot's son-in-laws who've just rejected God outright. But if you are, or if you're watching online, let me say this is, there's no greater moment than right now to accept this gift of salvation. And there's no magical formula to it. It's just simply saying, God, I see my need for you. And I want you to be my God. I receive this gift of salvation. That's it. it. There's no magic prayer to it. It's all but your heart. Maybe you're like Lot's wife where you're, you're sitting in church and you're going through the motions, but you've never actually trusted God. You know some of the stories and you know how to stand up and sit down and say amen at the right moment and laugh at the pastor's hilarious jokes. Thank you. So you know all those things, but you haven't actually giving yourself over to God, pray the same prayer. God, I want you to be my God. I see my need for you. Maybe you're like Lot. You still are drawn to this world, still wanting to fit into this world. And I pray that you would would ask God to put inside of you a heart and a passion and a fire for him that is far greater than anything this world could ever offer you. Or maybe you're like Abraham where your heart's already fully submitted to God. And you're able now to pray for those around you. Pray that they too will experience that grace and that life and that freedom and that hope in Jesus Christ that you've found. Please note, Abraham doesn't condemn Lot. He didn't shame Lot or his wife. He didn't attack them. He simply prayed for them because he offered them the same grace and mercy that God offered him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, We ask you now through your Holy Spirit to show us who we are in this story. Are we Lot's son-in-laws? Are we like Sodom and Gomorrah? Are We like Lot's wife where our heart isn't towards you. Show us that Lord. Even if it's hard to hear, let us see the truth because the truth will set us free. And I pray those who are in that category who relate to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah or Lot's wife, that Lord Jesus, they would turn their hearts to you entirely and the others who are like Lot that are are righteous and they're holy, but they're still holding on to this world. May you loosen that grip and help them to see that what you're offering is way better than what this world is offering. And for those who are like Abraham, Lord, may they pray and pray and pray. It's our greatest weapon because that prayer is asking you to do it for you to be God and to take hold. And it also allows us to align our hearts with what you're doing in your plan as we show that love and grace that you've bestowed on us to others. In your name we pray, amen.
0: You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca and sign up for our mailing list subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.